thank you guys for sharing that testimony. That was awesome. Um, you guys hear me most weeks or whoever's speaking here, but we need to hear from you too. We need to know what God's doing. And so if God leads you to share testimony, please let us know. We would love to hear what God's doing. When I was uh, in college at Marcel, I had this teacher, uh, and uh, he was a character. He would often come into the church, and he would take his glasses off, and he'd say, How's the kingdom today? So I asked that question, how is the kingdom today? If you feel God leading you to share, please do. Uh, we're going to look this morning at John 7, 25, through the end of the chapter. But for the reading, I just want to read verses 37, 38, and 39 of John chapter 7. So if you will stand in honor of our awesome God, I'll read. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If a man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. Let's pray. God, you are the water that quenches our thirst. I just pray you do that today, Lord. You're here and we need to know it. We're thirsty. <laughs> Maybe we don't realize it. Quench that thirst, Lord. Do far more than I can spirit Christ's name we pray amen in 2015 in a little town in California called East Portersfield population at that time 7,300 there was a drought many people did not realize uh, how people were suffering because of that drought and it was very very dry and as a matter of fact of the 7,300 people there were as many as a thousand families whose well had either run dry or was about to run dry. 72-year-old Donna Johnson was in the convenience store gas station one day, and she heard several of the townspeople talking about their wells had run dry. And suddenly it kind of hit her. There's going to be people without water in my community, my neighbors. And so she started a campaign to get bottled water. And then she recruited a couple of neighbors to deliver the water. And she started just walking around the community asking a, a simple question. Hi, I'm Donna. Do you have any water? And when she discovered people who didn't have water, they would deliver the bottled water. And they were able to see so many people who were desperate. Uh, on one occasion, she uh, stopped at a house 
the little house. There were eight people in the house, and she said, Hi, I'm Donna. Do you have water? And here was the response, a little, but if two people take a shower, it's done. Our well's dry. After she dropped the water off, they said, thank you for the water. We didn't know where to go. We're grateful. There are people out there whose throats and lips are parched and dry and they're desperate for water. There are also a lot of people whose souls are parched. They're desperate. They know there's more to life than what they're experiencing. And they're lonely and they have issues and they don't know where to go to get that refreshment that their soul needs in Psalm 107, <laughs> the songwriter is urging people to talk about their story of meeting God, of being redeemed. It talks about victory over foes. It, it talks about discovering a stable home after years of wandering aimlessly without a home. It talks about those who were distressed in their thirst and hunger. They cried out to God. To help them. And in verse 9, great little verse, the psalmist makes this declaration. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Uh, we're in the book of John, of course. And as you get near the end of the book of John, in chapter 20, verse 31, John reveals the reason for this biography that God led him to to write down and to share that people might believe Jesus is the Messiah and find life in his name. That, that was Jesus' ministry. Remember the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well? Jesus came and he went out of his way. He didn't take the usual route, but he went exactly where he needed to go. And he is at this well, and this woman comes out to draw water from the well, and he begins a conversation with her. Uh, many of you guys know, know that section of Scripture well. And Jesus says to her, after she's like, why, why are you here, you know? And she talks about, she says, have you come to get water? And, and here's his response. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. A couple of chapters later in chapter 6, verse 35, he's fed the multitude and he makes this declaration to them, whoever believes in him, in me, will never be thirsty. There's a soul thirst that will be quenched. Today, as we come to chapter 7, we're going to point out several groups of people as the chapter closes out who are thirsty. They're, they're desperate. Their soul is, is, is parched. And there are people all around us. 
Sometimes I'll be honest with you, I really, I miss it bad. There's so many people that they, they just don't know. And part of our call as belonging to Jesus Christ is to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. To let them know um, they're thirsty, where they can find the refreshment they need. But you know what? It doesn't just happen outside of God's family. God's family can also become very thirsty. They can kind of lose their way and move away from the spring that leads to eternal life, from the source of that living water. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, um, the prophet shares these words, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and dug cisterns that don't hold water. <laughs> we come to God, we come to Christ, we find ourselves in His church and community with His people, but Sometimes we can drift away and we can move away. And, and Jeremiah's giving this testimony. He's saying, you guys were a people that you encountered God. He came to you and a relationship was formed. But you have forsaken Him. And, and now you're just drifting. Now you're just wandering. Now your soul is parched and you are desperate because you know that there is more to life than what you are presently experiencing. And, and then second, in that declaration, he, he said, you dig these cisterns, but they don't hold water. They're cracked. They're broken. They do not hold the water that you need to find the refreshment that you are so desperately after. Now, let's begin. I want to look at these groups of people. To begin with, um, I want you to notice verse 25. It says, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask. So these were the people uh, close to where Jesus grew up, where he lived. I've referred to them as the local yokels. So these guys are the local yokels. They were familiar uh, with Jesus' neighborhood, and familiar with his family, and many of them were as neighbors to him. <laughs> or at, at least knew some of the people that he knew. And as these local yokels spoke about Jesus, made a couple of statements here. Um, they said uh, to him, first of all, have these guys really, do they really think he's the Messiah? Sure, treating him strange if they think that he is the Messiah. Uh, I don't really get it really is he the one that we're waiting for um in verse 30 it tells us that some tried to seize him they didn't want to listen to his claims in verse 31 it says there were some who believed and touted his amazing signs so there was a a lot of confusion among the local yokels those who you think would have a better grip since uh, that's where they lived and with what they were familiar with uh, here's Jesus' response. Look at verses 28 and 29. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, 
But he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. You see, we all tend to have our picture of who God is and who Jesus is. And they had a caricature of who the Messiah was going to be. And it was hard for these local yokels to think, well, he's already here. He's among us. They had pictured the Messiah as one who would come in with force and make things right and topple the enemy and free them from being under the dominion of Rome and and to put them on a pedestal. And, And so now as the people of God, people would see that they are not being conquered. They are conquerors. And that was their heart. That was their picture in Malachi 3, 1 and 2. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. In other words, he's not going to be approachable. He's going to be zapping the bad guys. And we want to make sure that we're humble so we don't get zapped. That was their mindset. They did not see God as being approachable, as as coming and and saying, I I love you and I I want you to, to be with me. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to know you. I want to laugh with you. I want to cry with you. I want to be a part of your life. The local yokels were were shocked with the words of Christ. But there's a second group. Look at verse 32 as they're identified. They're the critics. There's always a critic in the crowd. Went to see Barbara Gillen last night, and uh, we were talking. She's talking about some of the struggles trying to get someone to come and, and to help her at the hospital because there were so man, they were just overrun there in the emergency room area. And uh, she, she was disappointed. She was going with Robert and Gail, and that had to be put off a little bit. And she'd kind of shared that with me. And, and I, I said, you know, I said a few things. And I said, but it's easy to be a critic, isn't it? And we kind of laughed about that. Much easier to be a critic than it is to actually stop and think about what these people are dealing with and what they're facing and, and what is happening. And Jesus certainly had critics. Look at verse uh, 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. The chief priests, the Pharisees, sent temple guards to arrest him. And so they come to arrest him, and and they don't arrest him. Why? Well, as, as we go down in the scriptures, we discover that they say, Man, I, we've never heard anybody like him. This is no ordinary guy. And he was able to, to not be arrested and to walk right out of there because his time had not come. He had said earlier, and they were so confused when Jesus spoke. This is verse 33 on. He says, I'm with you only a short time, then I'm going to the one who sent me. They did not know what he was talking about. You will look for me, you'll not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. And look at their response. They said, they're talking one another. Where does he intend to go where we can't find him? We know the whole area. How fast can he walk? I mean, really? 
will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Is he going to walk down in our community where there's Greeks and Gentiles? You know, and, and what do you mean when he said, you'll look for me and you'll not find me? But where, where I come, you'll find what in the What is he talking about? They, they did not understand. He said, there is coming a time where I'm going back to heaven, my ultimate home. I am with you only for a season, only for this time. And you won't be able to find me once I go to heaven, which indicates that there is a passing opportunity. We all have a certain amount of time when God speaks to us to respond to him. And, and I don't know how long that time is. I don't know how long that opportunity will be. I don't know how many opportunities will come. But what I can say is there will be a time where the opportunity will pass. And, and part of my job as, as your pastor, as a preacher, is, is to be clear about that. That now is the day of salvation. Don't miss it. If God is speaking to you, if he is revealing himself to you, do not take that for granted. Do not put that off. Do not think, well, I, you know, I'll deal with this uh, when I'm a little older, five, ten years down the road. Guys, we don't know how long this opportunity will last. Listen, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Uh, one old adage says this, There's a time, we know not when, a line, we know not where, the marks of the destiny of man betwixt sorrow and despair. There is a line, though by man unseen, once it's been crossed, even God in all his love have sworn that all is lost. So these critics, they were attacking Christ. They even planned to arrest him, and they were missing who he is. They were making the most crucial mistake of their lives by not realizing who they were talking to, to be a critic of Christ. And then one final group uh, starts at verse 40. This is the rest of the crowd they were from all over the world. They had come to be part of this festival, this celebration. Uh, verse 40, it says, On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man's the prophet. So some recognized him as a prophet sent from God. Others said he's the Messiah. Wow, they pegged it. There were some that, that understood who he is. Still others. How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Galilee? Really? From that place? Does not Scripture say the Messiah will come from David's descendants? And from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? <laughs> Verse 43, Thus the people were divided. Some wanted to seize him. No one laid a hand on him. There, there were these various claims about Christ, who, who he is, and, and with these confusing opinions, people were, were arguing there was not an agreement, and so there was a, a, a schism, a division that arose, and people began to argue, and they spoke about Galilee and, and how it, it was really not much of a place, reminded me of the words of Philip when he was talking and 
And he talked about Jesus of Nazareth. Remember all of that, that conversation with the disciples and the response as he shared. And God said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth, which is a city in the Galilee. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember the response? Come and see. Man, that, you know, as I think about that, there are so many people, and you talk to them, and they've already made their mind up, and they haven't even investigated the facts. Have you even seriously looked to see if Jesus is the Messiah? Have you ever really studied to see if the Scriptures can be trusted? Have you ever really taken the time to find out if God is real? If Jesus came to die for you? If he rose from the grave, have you even examined the evidence that is available? Frank Turek, one of the guys I really enjoy listening to, um, who is an apologist, and Frank says that when he is talking to a skeptic, someone he clearly knows that doesn't believe in Jesus, he typically starts out with this question. If you were to find out that Jesus really is the Messiah, and you were to find out, that you can depend upon the Bible and that Christianity is true, would you believe it? I know that sounds like a nutty question, but he asked that because many times the response is no. In other words, my mind's made up and you're not going to change it. Man, that is not the way to be, guys. Because guess what? No one knows everything. Let's say that you know half of everything there is in the world, and that would be quite generous, would it not? Well, let me just say, God is in the half you don't know if, if you claim he does not exist, uh, if, if he, he is not there. In verse 52, notice what they said. No prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Well, these students of the scriptures flunked, at least uh, that day, uh, that Galilee was discussed because there's one guy that came out of there who's a pretty well-known prophet. Now, he wasn't the kind of guy you probably would imagine inviting to your church to come and speak because his name was Jonah and he didn't want to speak. He wanted to go the other direction from where God was leading him. <laughs> God used him mildly, but even at the very end, he was grumbling. God, why did you take me there to speak to those people? And God said, because I love them too. And, and that is our, our Christ. He, he, he loves people. And these guys didn't get the facts right. They didn't even try. How many people don't even take the time to research um, or to talk to other believers or to try to figure out, is this really real? But they want to die in what they think or what they believe. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, don't take it for granted. Take time to study. Take time to learn these truths because there are other people who, who don't know. And, and they just need people to love them and be able to share the truth with them. There are some people they don't see because they choose not to see and they don't hear because they choose not to hear. And it's lo, 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 lo when you speak. Pray, may God open their minds and their hearts that they'll be willing to come. These people uh, in Jesus' time, they were thirsty. They had 
been in captivity to the Babylonians and then they were settled in Israel again and they found themselves being controlled by the Roman Empire. And so there was a fever pitch. We want the Messiah to come. We are so thirsty for the Messiah to free us, to be among us. We live in a world now, um, man, the thirst so evident. And people are trying to quench that thirst in the wrong places. I remember an old song by Johnny Lee when I was young. If you're searching for love in all the wrong places, you know, looking in all the wrong faces and all this stuff. People who miss him. Some people try to find it in money. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. It says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. You know, I know I've joked to you guys, my grandfather, who I never had the chance to meet, I want to meet him in heaven, of course. But, uh, my dad said he used to always say, I'm not greedy, I just want my land and the land that joins it. <laughs> um, it's never enough. Uh, or some people, you know, it, it's, it's all about romance or it's all about sex. And if I you know, could just have that, you know, what my dream, my fantasy or whatever. And I know a lot of times the guys seem more hung up there than the gals. But uh, it, there's not enough there. Or status. I just want to be somebody. I want you to see me. I want you to recognize me. I, I want you to, to put those letters in front of my name or that special title because I matter. You know, and of course, I can help always think of Proverbs sixteen eighteen, where it says, "Pride goes before destruction, and the haughty spirit before a fall." And it, if you know Jesus, you are somebody not because of what you've accomplished. You are somebody because you are identified with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and you are forgiven, and you matter. That's where your identity truly lies. But if you're searching for these things to fulfill you, whether it's money or sex or status or substance or anything else, it's never enough. Just like that Ecclesiastes 5.10. It's never enough. It never satisfies us. As a matter of fact, you just find out you've got to have more of it. And what you really discover is more of it turns into a poison that doesn't give you life but sucks the life out of you. And, you know, so, so tragic. Max Lucado you know, of course, Max can say it much better than I could. But this is from one of his books, The Applause of Heaven. And here's how he describes this. False fountains pacify our cravings with sugary swallows of pleasure. But there comes a time when pleasure doesn't satisfy. There comes a dark hour in every life when the world caves in and we're left, left trapped in the rubble of reality, parched and dying. We're very thirsty, but not for fame, possession, passion, or romance. We've drunk from those pools. They are salt water in the desert. They don't quench, they kill. No, we're thirsty for a clean conscience. We crave a clean slate. We yearn for a fresh start. The problem is the treasures of the earth don't satisfy. The promise is the treasures of heaven do satisfy. And that brings us to the passage that was our scripture reading, verses 37 through 39. Jesus gives an amazing promise to us who are thirsty, whose souls are parched. 
to bring refreshment to that desperation. Um, they were at the festival of the tabernacles. They met there for a week. Uh, they slept in these tabernacles at, at night with their families. But in the daytime, they would go to the temple to celebrate. One commentator wrote a description of that, which I, I'm going to read to you. I thought it was interesting. Now, the people, when they came to the temple, they had in their left hand a piece of citrus fruit, symbolic of the fruitful land God gave them. In their right hand, they had branches of three different trees, a palm tree branch, a willow branch, and a myrtle branch, or pieces of it, emblematic of the stages of the wilderness wanderings before they got in the promised land. Citrus fruit foliage, thousands of them there, singing songs, the priest meets them, he has a golden pitcher, they all take a procession from the temple area down to the pool of Salome. The priest takes the golden pitcher, dips it in the pool, water of the pool of Salome, marches back up to the temple, they're singing psalms, he takes the water, pours it on the stones of the altar, and as they witness this, the crowd sings in unison a passage from Isaiah 12. The joy... With joy, you will draw waters from the well of salvation. With joy, you'll draw waters from the well, well of salvation. Now, pouring the water was symbolic of the water God gave from the rock itself in the desert. <laughs> Remember that story? You can get water from a rock if God desires to give it to you. <laughs> um, but on that day, verse 37, what's it say? He tells us, on the last and greatest day of the feast. So they've come to the end of the week. And at the end of the week, we're about at the climax of this festival. And this commentary goes on to describe that climax. It's pretty powerful. This, this is what he says. <laughs> what happened is the people would meet at the temple. The priest would meet them there. They'd go to Salome. They'd get the water. They'd come back. They'd do the deal. But the priest would march around the altar, not once, but seven times on the last day. Why seven times? They marched around Jericho seven times. I knew most of you guys, that clicked. You got it? As they were entering, and that was the first place, they sang that from Isaiah 12, with joy you'll draw water from the well of salvation. But on the sixth march around the altar, the priest with the golden pitcher was met by another priest with a pitcher of wine. Water and wine. Wine symbolic of joy. God has given us joy, refreshment. That was a message. Then the priest with the pitcher of water would ascend the steps of the altar. As he would get up and start walking, every step the people shouted louder and louder. And then he would pause at the top Lift the pitcher of water up slowly. And with every little millimeter of movement, the crowd would continue shouting more intensely, louder and louder, until the pitcher was at the very top. And the priest, is, as he could reach, suddenly there was a hush over the crowd as they were in expectation, waiting for the water to be poured for refreshment. Now, picture this. This is what's happening. As the priest is marching up and the people are at fever pitch, 
has, has, they're singing this from Isaiah 12 of, of the joy that awaits them. And suddenly, as there's this holy hush, as the priest prepares to pour the water, it says, Jesus stood. He didn't speak to the people. He shouted. In a very loud voice, he yelled. He said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Talk about getting some attention. Suddenly, the people who were, were famished, who, who were thirsty, who were, who were parched, there was an invitation given by Jesus Christ. <laughs> if you're thirsty, come to me. Come to me and drink. Guys, that same invitation is for those of us here who are either listening on air or here in person. He knows where you are. He knows if you're thirsty. He knows if you are desperate. And He provides an invitation. It's not just the religion. It's not just the, the, the rituals that we go through saying God is here and, and He will come. And, and as we do that, as, as we prepare ourselves, Jesus speaks. And that's what we need, isn't it? Not just more religion. We need Jesus Himself to speak to us and say, come and drink. That, that is the invitation that He provides to us. It is a promise to a thirsty people. Notice he says in 37, if anyone thirsts, do you thirst? Come, drink. Come, drink. I love Isaiah 55, first verse. The prophet Isaiah gives this beautiful invitation. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. He's saying, come, but you don't earn it. You don't buy it. You don't do anything to deserve it. It is from our Father. It is from God. He knows your thirst and He provides the living water. Even more than that, guys, He is the living water. He is our Savior. He is our hope. He is Christ. And it is a personal invitation. It's not to come and just experience religious practices. It's not to sing of someone who is in the past. We don't just merely talk about what he has done. We come to celebrate what he is doing and what he intends to do in each of us through his power, through his work. And he invites us. He invites us. He who believes in me, Jesus says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Second point with this. Man, the first point is he wants you to find refreshment. He wants you personally to find what you are desperate for, him. But the second part of this, and we'll see if you see this, he says, when you believe in him, those rivers of living water don't just flow this way. They flow this way. Once they flow into you and you get full, those waters have to go somewhere. So they go out to other people who are thirsty, to other people who desperately need the refreshment that Jesus alone provides. 
is the water of Christ flowing out of your life? Do you come and do you, do you sit and soak and sour? Or is there with, within you a, a, a thirst that, that he has met and you feel so blessed that you want to be a blessing to other people? Because that is the plan of God. The plan of God is not that he just calls a preacher to come and to speak to you. The plan of God is that he himself speaks and we can't continue just to sit. We have to serve. The rivers that flowed into us suddenly have to have somewhere to go, to flow out of us for his glory, to do his work. There are three kinds of faith. Uh, I'm getting near the end. Hang on. <laughs> uh, first, there's the faulty faith. This is the faith of the unbeliever. I'm enough. I can do it. Or I can look somewhere else to find my satisfaction besides God. You know, um, that first sin committed, right? Forsaken the spring of living water. I, I can look somewhere else. The second type of faith, and by the way, even the demons have this faith. In James 2.19, it, it tells us that even the demons believe and tremble or shudder. They believe he's God. They just don't want to trust him or follow him. You can believe that Jesus exists and that Jesus is real, but that personal pronoun matters. Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Have you trusted him? Um, so that's the first one. Secondly is a firm faith. It's important to have a firm faith. A faith where you are standing on that solid foundation of Christ. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is shifting sand, right? Well, that solid rock. Uh, my son Nathan plays video games uh, sometimes at night. And his friend Scotty and they will talk and back and forth, you know, through the internet and all that. I, games were never my thing, so. But anyway, Nathan told me the other night, he and Scotty were talking to this guy. They met playing games on the internet, and he's from Asheville, North Carolina, and we all know where Asheville is. So anyway, he said, this guy told him, he said, I'm a vegan. He said, um, I'm a communist, and I'm a Satanist. And so Nathan asked him, a Satanist? What do you mean? What do you mean by being a, an atheist? I mean, not an atheist, but a Satanist. He said, well, if you believe in God, you're a theist. If you don't believe in God, you're an atheist. If you don't know what you believe, or if you ever can know what to believe in, you're an agnostic. And he said, but a Satanist believes in himself. So we are atheist. I have never heard that term. An atheist, I believe in I, in me, myself, that's it. That's where my hope lies. I'm an atheist. I thought, man, that sounds just like the devil, doesn't it? He says, I will lift myself above the God of heaven, and I want to take that place. I'm the one to believe in, not the God of heaven, me. So I guess in that sense, even though it seems strange to think a Satanist would encourage his followers to worship self, that's his example. And it is an example that leads to the wrong place. 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no one can lay any foundation than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. That, that's the foundation. And of course, I already mentioned the song, but couldn't help but think of it. 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground sinking sand, sinking sand. He is the firm foundation. As Jesus closed the Sermon on the Mount, do not build your house on, on sand that, that shifts and will cause the whole house to, to fall. But on the solid foundation, which is the one who believes my word and practices my word in following me. And then there's uh, one more. <laughs> A flowing faith. Man, that flowing faith is when you realize not only that you're blessed, but you want to be a blessing. When you step out in faith to be that blessing to other people, since you've been satisfied, you want to satisfy others. I've been working on a new memory verse um, from the prophet Ezekiel. Now, I had actually, well, hopefully learned 33:31. Uh, now I'm working on verse 32, but these are some convicting words you to hear what the prophet said my people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to listen to your words oh i come to church to hear the word they sit before you to hear your words but they do not put them into practice with their mouths they speak of love but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain man now listen to verse 32 Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. Yeah, God, I got fired up today. Yeah, God, I, I love to be there and hear that music and hear those testimonies and, 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 the, and the word, to hear the word preached. And now I can leave here and be excited for 15 minutes and go back to my old same the way of life. Man, that just convicted me because I thought of myself, how often do I hear a message and God grabs a hold of me? I'm, I'm thirsty and he, he quenches me and what do I do? I, I sit there, man, that just sounds like a beautiful love song or, or man, he sang that well or played that instrument well. But if you don't put the words into practice, then the music doesn't become your song. It becomes a song. All right, I'm finally at the end. I want to close with uh, an excerpt from one of C.S. Lewis's books, The Silver Chair. Um, here's the background. Uh, Aslan the lion is seen by a girl named Jill. She sees Aslan, she freaks out, and she runs away when she sees the great lion. Um, as a result, she quickly finds herself dying of thirst. She can't run anymore. She's wiped out, parched. Exhausted, she sees Aslan is there, but she's too weak to do anything. So now I'm just going to read from Lewis. Lewis says, Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. May I, could I, would you mind going a while while I drink? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. God, I want you to take care of me, but I don't want you, I don't want to do it your way. As Jill gazed at this momentous bulk, 
she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings, emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. He didn't say it as if he were boasting or if he were so sorry or as if he were angry. He just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, <laughs> said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to just believe the lion. No one had ever seen the stern face could ever do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. So she went forward to that stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water in her hands. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she ever tasted. That water was Jill's old. Jesus said, I am the living water. Whoever comes to me will never shine on him. Have you tasted the water? Do you need another drink today? Let's pray. God, we are grateful, Lord, that Jesus cared about all three groups of people. He died for all, Lord. You are the stream from which we must drink if we are to find fulfillment, if we are to have our parched souls and thirst quenched. And I pray this morning we would respond to you whether it's at this altar to pray or to make a decision right where we stand or whether it's to come and to publicly share um, as, as Brian and Darlene have, like, what the difference you are making or, or a difference that you're making this moment because you spoke and, and I responded and you just want to tell us about it. I, Father, I just want to give you the freedom um, to work and uh, keep us out of your way. As a brother Jerry loves to say, uh, keep me in your will so I'll stay out of your way. And I guess I'm trying to say that. Uh, Father, just move. We are thirsty, Lord. May we find you. Quench our thirst, God. In Christ's name we pray.